Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Stephen Fritz about his excellent new book, The First Soldier, Hitler as a Military Leader, published by Yale University Press. Stephen, hello, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Craig. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you. Um, Stephen, we always like to traditionally begin these interviews by having the author telling us a little bit about themselves, their background, how they got interested in history. Um, and where they where they currently teach? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I'm, I guess I'm like a lot of people who are interested in history. I, I don't really have a, um, a seminal moment when I got interested in history. I always seem to have been in, interested in history, and and uh, have always been fascinated with, uh, I guess, the stories of history as much as anything, uh, and and why things happened, and and what happened because things happened. So. It's it's always been an interest of mine. Um, in, in terms of where I studied, I, I, I earned my PhD at the University of Illinois um, and studied under uh, two really very different individuals there. And it, I, I was one of those interesting people who, who kind of fell through the cracks because I was originally interested in um, Weimar era, 1920s era German history. And my um, my official advisor uh, was J. Alden Nichols, who was um, a specialist in in late uh, 19th century, uh, the, actually the late um, uh, Wilhelminian period. Um, and my other the other professor I worked with was uh, Paul Schrader, who was um, quite a prominent and still is quite a prominent uh, diplomatic historian, but primarily of the 19th century okay. Europe. So. I've often pondered about the, the fact that I kind of fell through the cracks there, but but it was in a sense for me it was interesting because I learned, um, I think from both of them things that have have stuck with me the rest of my life, and maybe that's I, I guess kind of a lesson for 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 listeners to, to you don't have to be pigeonholed I suppose into especially from from Professor Nichols I really learned I think I hope I learned the. How to how to how to uh, kind of the art of style, how to present a story, how to uh, how to kind of frame a, a narrative so that so that it's interesting, and how to how to get at the human dimension. And from Professor Pro- Professor Schrader, I learned really kind of the art, I think, of of constantly questioning and of constantly asking. Um, what were the unintended consequences of actions or decisions or events of of really looking to try to see um what else might have happened of, of trying to look at thing at trying to look at events through a different perspective um and um uh, try try to see uh, things uh, differently uh, if not you know full-fledged revision is certainly to to try to try to see things uh, from all sorts of different angles, so you can get a better sense of um, of what and why things were happening. Um, yeah, I think I think more people would benefit from having uh, multiple advisors with different perspectives to to learn sort of different ways of doing things, going about things. Um, 
where is it that you teach now? I teach at uh, East Tennessee State University, mm-hmm. and I, I've been here now for 35 years. Uh, so it's um, it's obviously a place that's that's been very comfortable to work at and and teach and and live in. So. Um, it's one of those things, I guess, when you start out your career, you don't exactly know what, what's going to happen. But um, uh, And my wife and I certainly never expected to be here for, for this length of time. But you know, as I said, it's a very comfortable, beautiful area to live in, in, in uh, Upper East Tennessee, in the mountains of Upper East Tennessee. And uh, I've had very uh, congenial colleagues and, and very, um, very helpful administration in terms of pursuing research efforts. So it's, it's, it's been a nice, comfortable place to be. Ooh, oh, fantastic. Um, so now let's, let's turn to your new book. Um, I know you've written several books, um, this being the newest. Um, how did you come up with the idea to, to write this book? Um, what, what sort of motivated you to, to, to look, to re-examine Hitler as a, as a military strategist and leader? Yeah, actually, it's, it's one of those, um, as I said, talking about interesting stories, that's one of those interesting stories. And point of fact, it really wasn't my idea originally. I was, um, after after the publication of my third book, Ostkrieg, um, Hitler's War of Extermination in the East, um, I guess maybe six months or so after it had appeared, I, I was contacted by um, uh, Heather McCallum, who at that time was an editor at Yale University Press and now actually is the managing director of Yale University Press. And she suggested very nicely that that she thought a book on on reassessment of Hitler as a military leader would be a, a good project to pursue. She had read Oskrieg and thought that that you know that, that that it was interesting, and I might be a, a person who could reassess Hitler as as the military leader. And at that time, I was on to another project, or I had just started another project, and and so I. And I wasn't all that interested in in looking reassessing Hitler as a military leader initially, and so I suggested other possible topics to her. And, and over a period of time, she uh, very uh, effectively but but very professionally dissuaded me from these mm-hmm. other projects and keep com- kept coming back to the notion of Hitler as a military leader. So, and the more she su- she suggested it, the more I really got interested in and um and I began to perceive possibilities in in in, in reassessing Hitler. I I guess in Austria I had seen some of this that, that 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 the caricature of Hitler as um as kind of an irrational mad madman just didn't fit what I was seeing in the sources and and so the more I thought about it and the more I discussed it with um with Heather the the more I began to realize that, that this was a um, an interesting project, and, and this could be something that could be very, um, very fruitful. So, in a sense, I guess I, I, I came at it to it in a, in a roundabout way, and and had to be persuaded. But once persuaded, then I then I could um, begin to perceive the different possibilities in reexamining Hitler. Yep. Um, could you just give the listeners just a, a a little bit of what the prevailing view of Hitler as a military leader has been? in the past sort of let them know what you're responding to yeah it, it, it's in a sense it's kind of interesting as a professional historian because i wasn't really responding to other historians interpretations certainly not recent historians interpretations since there's been a lot of really good work in the last 10 or 15 years on on hitler and world war ii in general but I was really responding to the to kind of the popular image of Hitler that had been created in 
again, it's it's one of those interesting stories that the, at the end of the war, the U.S. Army found itself in possession as prisoners of war of a of a goodly number of very senior German generals, and having very little idea of what to do with them, um, they decided to put them at work. I suppose it seemed sensible at the time, writing histories of the various military operations and campaigns in which these generals had participated. You know, interestingly, they put them, they put the former chief of the general staff, Franz Halder, in charge, overall charge of um, of coordinating and, and overseeing and directing this project. And Halder, of course, who had been um, at at uh, at variance at, with Hitler off and on his, during his entire career as chief of staff, um, effectively uh, managed the program so that um, the, 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 the subtle or oftentimes not so subtle viewpoint taken in virtually all the operational histories that were written was that um, Hitler was an idiot and that but for Hitler's intervention, the, the clear-sighted, rational assessments of the generals uh, would always have prevailed. And then in kind of an interesting phenomenon then, um, early um, military historians picked up on these essentially primary documents since they were written by the generals involved in the actual operations. And, and they, they, they kind of went unquestioningly with this interpretation and and so it it stuck, and it's I mean it's still uh, in the in the in the popular mind, um, it is still very much prevalent. So, in a sense, I was I was writing to that audience that, that is that is generally educated, but not necessarily a specialist in in the field, and trying perhaps to persuade them to see Hitler in a different light. And and in in doing this project. You mentioned the the memoirs or the the histories from the from his former generals. Um, can you just talk a little bit about some of the other things that you looked at to help you write this book? A lot, lot of the, a lot of the, um, since since this was centered on Hitler as as the military leader, much of it, of course, was centered on um, records of his military conferences, um, records of obviously diaries um, of top military leaders with whom he interacted, the um, various transcripts of his um, his so-called table talks, his nightly, um, I can't really say conversations, his nightly monologues with members of his inner, inner circle, obviously um, uh, diplomatic correspondence, um, there are a lot of trial records um, that were gathered for the Nuremberg trials, actual documents um, in which, you know, memoranda and uh, and uh, official documents of that nature. So trying to trying to use those to get to get kind of um, uh, of a comprehensive picture of how Hitler was seeing things at at at, at, at any given time. Um, yeah. Fascinating. Um, so we'll let, let's. Start with the beginning of the book um, and talk about Hitler's World War One experience. Um, right. And I, I, you know, this is definitely, and you, you make this case in your book. This is definitely a really important uh, time in Hitler's life. Um, if you could uh, explain to us not only what his experience was, but how you feel like it set him up for future thinking in terms of, you know, in terms of military thinking. 
Right. Um, yeah. In, in many respects, I think you know, it, Hitler never really did leave World War One. I. I mean, the rest of his life was, I think, in in some respects, you could argue was was an effort to undo the the um, the loss of World War One. Hitler, um, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, was at the front um, in in World War One. But interestingly, given the nature of his job, he was at the front, but not necessarily at the front if 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 the if the listener gets what i i mean he his job of course was very dangerous he was a dispatch runner so he would obviously take messages from battalion and regimental headquarters to the front lines and and oftentimes under very um, dangerous circumstances but um, as opposed to being in the in the in the, in the frontline trenches um, he would spend considerable amounts of time obviously at battalion and regimental headquarters which gave him not only an opportunity to kind of get a glimpse of the bigger picture, but also uh, afforded him more time to reflect. And that was, that was one of the things that most of his comrades after, after he became prominent, obviously in the late twenties, early thirties, and began to write some sort of reminiscences of, I, you know, of the type I knew Adolf Hitler when, they tended to remember him as as kind of a loner, but somebody who was who was unusual in that he always seemed to be thinking about what was going on. He always seemed to be trying to make sense of what was happening. He always seemed to be pondering the deeper implications of of um, of, of the war and, and what had happened and and what was going on. So that kind of marked him out as as unusual. In terms of, um, essentially, in terms of what he learned from the war, I, th- I think the big thing was, um, obviously, clearly he adopted the, the stab in the back notion uh, that, that Germany had um, had had lost the war not because of any failing of the military, but because of the of the collapse of the home front. And interestingly, as he as he put the pieces together, he he, he formulated a an explanation, and, and in many respects, you can see this very clearly in, in a lot of Hitler's early speeches in the early 1920s, where he, he's um, he's be, he's emerging as a as a significant regional um, political force in in Bavaria. Many of Hitler's uh, early speeches are really uh, attempts to try to explain what happened. I mean, they're not again, they're not uh, the stereotypical Hitler waving and and wildly denouncing enemies. He he really is struggling to try to uh, explain to to his audience and probably to himself exactly why this misfortune had um, had befallen Germany, and what he came up with was kind of an, an interesting uh, sort of um, sort of scenario here, which which really I think was quite convincing to many Germans, and in the sense that the German home front had collapsed because of um, because of the pressure of the um, British blockade. Which to Hitler pointed up the necessity of um, of resources. Germany had failed because Germany uh, didn't have the necessary raw materials and foodstuffs and so forth with with which to fight a a major war. Which led then to the to the next reflection of how Germany could obtain these resources. And if you if you look at Mein Kampf, I mean it's kind of interesting. He goes through a fairly logical sort of uh, of assessment that germany could um, post world war 1 germany could return to the pre world war 1 era of of 
of, of free trade and, and globalization and, and exporting, but that wasn't probably going to work because um, Germany's former enemies were not likely to engage in, in free or fair trade with Germany anymore. And then the second scenario, of course, was that Germany could, um, like um, Great Britain or France, uh, become a colonial power and, and grab a colonial empire, but he rejected that both for racial reasons and for the obvious fact that all the all the territory was gone overseas, and the the third um, scenario, interestingly, he he tended to he tended to use the United States as a model that um, that uh, Germany could become a continent state by simply expanding into territory contiguous um, with Germany, and so that meant expansion into East Central Europe and European Russia. And in, 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 in that area then had the, the, the raw materials and foodstuffs Germany needed theoretically to make itself blockade proof and, and, um, and to successfully, um, prosecute, um, a, a major war and become a, and become a world power. So, um, he, he, he kind of went through this, he kind of went through this logical sort of step by step process. And, and again, I'm sure which would seem very convincing to many of his, his listeners in, in these speeches. Um, and the other thing that, that he learned from, from, um, I think from world war one was that, um, he tended to see this as a total war as a struggle for existence of a, of a nation, a, na- a, na- a nation struggle for existence. And in that scenario, from Hitler's perspective, and he always was in a sense, an all or nothing sort of personality, in that respect, if war was for the very existence of a nation, that to him indicated then that in in the conduct of a war, uh, all means were acceptable in 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 this struggle for existence, and and that tended to typify his attitude from the very beginning that that um, war from Hitler's point of view was always going to be essentially an extreme struggle for existence, which meant the bottom line, I suppose you say, a war of annihilation was always lurking in his in his basic ideas. Um, from, from what you could tell, did he have any sort of intellectual underpinnings for his ideas? Did he, he read military, uh, military philosophers, political philosophers? Did he seek yeah. out professors in Germany? Um, did he have any intellectual sort of foundation? Yeah, he was, um, again, Hitler was one of those interesting sort of uh, self-educated people who uh, he clearly had a photographic memory in, in that he really never forgot anything he read. Um, he had read extensively. He was a great admirer, obviously, of Frederick the Great and his um, military um, activities. He had read extensively in, in the famous uh, a theorist of war, Karl von Clausewitz. Um, he was an associate in, in his early political days. In the early 20s, of course, he was closely associated with Erich Ludendorff, who had been one of the last military leaders in um, in Germany. Um, he, he tended, I think, he tended to 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 um, absorb key points from from all of those. He, he was, of course, impressed with Frederick the Great's. Um, Will sense of will, sense of determination, his understanding that, that uh, of the 
of, of war as a state function. Um, he also, I think, in some respects, had a clearer understanding of Frederick the Great than did um, his generals. Um, he understood that, that uh, more often than not, Frederick won his victories not through any sort of lightning military campaigns, we might say, but simply through wearing down his opponents. Um, so he had a fairly clear understanding of, of the political nature of war, uh, the political goals of war, which, of course, that was reinforced by Clausewitz, who always insisted that the political goals of war were, were superior and that had to inform uh, all other aspects of war. And, and certainly that appealed to Hitler, as a, especially after he became a political leader. And then Ludendorff, I think he was impressed with Ludendorff because of um, Ludendorff's understanding that the new war, World War I, um, in essence, had become a total war, um, uh, what the Germans often referred to as a people's war. Um, and in the people's war, again, you get that sense of, of the total dimension. In, in a people's war, all all things which... Uh, which would help lead to victory are acceptable in terms of in terms of how you conduct a war. Um, and then one final person in terms of in terms of uh, geopolitical strategy, of course, was the very famous um, Munich professor Karl Haushofer, who was one of the key exponents of geopolitics in in the in the 1920s and actually 1920s and 1930s had a great influence on Rudolf Hess, who was one of Hitler's chief associates, closest associates in the 1920s and, and, and 1930s. And from Haushofer, I think Hitler learned the importance of space and and resources and, and the fluidity of borders, that, that space is a, a, an amorphous concept. And and there there are, in fact, very few what we might call natural borders. And and um, how how you use the space or who controls the space is is not determined by geographic factors. It's determined by um, military force, political will. <clears throat> excuse me. The um, the determination to use this territory as you as you um, as you would intend it. And 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 Haushofer also emphasized that, of course, and you have in the 1920s you have the reality that. Um, that people at that time would have witnessed the collapse of four great empires. So East Central Europe would have been a a, a space in a vacuum. Um, so the old borders would have collapsed. Um, the new borders would have been perceived as very artificial and temporary. And it seemed to, not only to Hitler, but many other would-be uh, uh, expansionist leaders at the time it, it it seemed that there was a whole area out here which was simply um, which is simply ripe for the taking and hitler hitler fancied himself from um, uh, what he called a round politiker uh, which which meant he, he was a politician of space he was a theorist of space and so his ultimate goal was to reshape all of this space out in in east central europe yeah i I, I think that's fascinating. I don't think a lot of people really know about the the things that Hitler read or Hitler thought about. Um, they know the end result, um, but I don't know if they know a lot of the things that you just mentioned. Um, let's move up a little bit um, to 1933. Now Hitler is in power. 
Um, he's done all this thinking that you just eloquently described. Uh, but now he actually has to sort of begin the process of working with people in the military, people in government and things. Um, can you describe what his relationship was like with the military uh, very early on? And we'll, um, I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on how it evolves over the course of, of his reign. But initially, what is that relationship like? Yeah, in in a sense, it was. Um, I suppose both were, both Hitler and 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 the top military leaders were, um, I think initially rather apprehensive of each other. There was kind of um, it was kind of a feeling out process. They, they you know the, the the top military leaders were were frankly skeptical of this guy. He 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 didn't come from the right social class. He. He obviously didn't have the right credentials. He wasn't educated. He didn't go to university. Uh, he'd been a, a mere private or corporal, however you want to translate Gefreiter, in 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 World War One. Um, he clearly didn't have the bona fides that 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 um, the top military leaders would would wish for. But on the other hand, um, he said a lot of things they liked. Um, uh, he, he talked about restoring the German military and, and German power, and he talked obviously about reclaiming uh, lost German territory, uh, 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 revising the Treaty of Versailles and getting back, especially in the east uh, from Poland, from the new state of Poland, lost German territory. Um, at a time in the early 1930s when the only alternative to Hitler in the in the in the, in the dismal crisis of the Great Depression in, in Weimar, Germany, when the only alternative to Hitler and the Nazis seemed to be the communists, um, Hitler certainly uh, impressed the, the generals with his willingness to uh, to take on what they perceived like him as the, as the communist danger. Um, he talked about rebuilding Germany economically and, and, and promoting them um, uh, in Dutch industrial development, economic development again. So those were all things that, that resonated with the generals. So they are they are skeptical of him, although you know he says a lot of, from their perspective, he says a lot of the right things. From Hitler's perspective, again, he's, he's skeptical of the generals. Um, he's, Hitler, from, from a lot of his early experiences, I think had a burning resentment at social privilege, at class privilege, and Hitler saw himself as one of those bright people who is oftentimes not given opportunities or respect or the proper status simply because he doesn't have the, the proper class background or the proper credentials. Um, he saw himself as as one of those young individuals with great talent who whose way was blocked um, because of because of class privilege and so forth. So he he in fact throughout his life he he burned with resentment against the aristocracy and and of course many of the military officers had come from the aristocracy. But Hitler again, I mean Hitler understood the bottom line was if you're going to restore German power and if you're if you're going to um not only destroy the Versailles system but ultimately you uh, you're I mean excuse me if you're not not only going to revise the Versailles system but ultimately uh, as was Hitler's intention we destroy the Versailles system you have to have a powerful military force and and the um 
the reality was that modern military uh, are technological, and you had to have experts in technology and weapons procurement and weapons design and organization and training and all of the rest. I mean, it's it's nice to talk about having a revolutionary army, but you have to be able to trans- transform this revolutionary spirit into a, an effective, disciplined, highly technological fighting force. And the, the people who had that expertise were the military officers, the top generals. And so it's kind of in the beginning, it's kind of, um, it's kind of a, um, a mutual dependency. They don't particularly trust each other and they don't particularly like each other, but, but they both understand that in order to get where they want to go, they have to they have to rely on each other and i think that that characterizes the early relationship hmm. um what are some of the key steps early on that uh hitler takes to start rebuilding the german military uh, either policy or um things you know different ideas that he brings to to achieve that goal yeah and that, that, that's a good question and i think it it goes along with what i was saying that um in a sense, what happens, and in, 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 in you don't want to get too deterministic about this, but it's almost like things fall on the line almost uh, perfectly in order for Hitler to kind of demonstrate his political skill and, and his diplomatic uh, intuition and, and kind of um, begin um, imposing his dominance on the military. It, again, we tend to think of Hitler as always being dominant, but in the early months of his um, administration of his regime really maybe the first year it was the military leaders who thought they had the upper hand but but hitler in a sense um i think i guess again understood uh, understood them the steps along the way better than they did the, 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 I, I rather than ramble on here i guess the best example would be that the, the um the beginning uh, uh with the disarmament conference the uh, the um the new head of the of, of the uh, of the um, army, uh, Blomberg, um, understood that in order to uh, rearm that that um, that Germany would have to um, violate the restrictions of the disarmament clauses of the Versailles Treaty, and there was in fact a disarm a general disarmament conference which had which had been dragging on for for a year or so, which was which was currently taking place and. In Geneva, and in order to um, rearm, Blomberg and the German generals realized that that, that Germany would have to uh, withdraw from the disarmament conference, which would which would signal obviously German intention to to begin rearming. But they didn't really understand how to go about doing that, and it was Hitler who supplied the kind of the diplomatic finesse um, and and the, and the, and the diplomatic cover for. Withdrawing from the armament conference, but but in a sense making it seem that that Germany was not withdrawing in order to um, in order to begin the process of rearmament, but that Germany was disarming in terms of um, I guess what you might say a moral protest against the failure of the of the disarmament conference to result in general disarmament of all the major powers. The, Hitler's early diplomacy was really quite skillful in, in keeping um, his would-be opponents, um, the British, the French, others, um, kind of off balance and, and, in a sense, disguising his his real in, in, intention. Um, one of them, 
one of the key um, one of the key um, developments was the um, Anglo-German Naval Agreement of June 1935, which is one of the lesser known um, steps, I suppose, along the way in which um, Hitler rather skillfully disengaged uh, Great Britain from from a would-be anti-Hitler coalition, the, the so-called Strazer Front of uh, Great Britain, France, and Italy. And in June 1935, Hitler essentially um, essentially um, broke the Strazer Front and 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 um, and lured Britain away from from France and Great Britain by agreeing to a, a, a um, naval disarmament agreement with um, with Great Britain, which um, in which the, the, the Germans agreed to limit the size of the German Navy to about um, 35% the size of the British Navy, which was uh, from Germany's, from Hitler's point of view, which was was um, acceptable not only because that was the larger um, percentage basically than than, than uh, Hitler had envisioned. But more importantly, because it validated uh, German rearmament, it, 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 the, the agreement essentially violated the terms of, of, the, of the Treaty of Versailles and essentially gave um, British um, approval, essentially kind of the kind of the British um, uh, stamp of, uh, of 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 approval on um, on German rearmament. So. Hitler proved very skillful in terms of his, in terms of his early measures, and I could go on and on. The, obviously, the, the reoccupation of the Rhineland in March 1936 was a, was a, was a crucial step. And I, I suppose the bottom line of all these was that, in, a, in sort of a step by step process, Hitler not only demonstrated his political skill, which greatly impressed German military leaders. But at each stage along the way, Hitler seemed to have more um, determination. He seemed to have more courage. He seemed to have a, a stronger will, a stronger nerves than the, than the German military, which which tended to impress both him and them. Um, and certainly by 1937 or thereabouts, Hitler had become convinced that um, he certainly had a um, a stronger force of will and, and, and could see things more clearly than his than his military advisors. And, and he seemed to get some help, right, from forces beyond his control. You know, the Italians decide to invade Ethiopia, um, making a, an arrangement between the British, the French, and the Italians basically impossible. Um, right. Um, and then, you know, the Spanish Civil War. Um, so there was these other things going on even beyond his control that that, that seemed to help him achieve these uh, achieve these goals um, you you brought us up to 1937 so this is a maybe this is a good place to sort of shift gears a little bit and, and talk about um, the Munich conference and, and sort of the annexation of the Sudetenland and uh, you you in the book you do a very good job of, of, of demonstrating um, Hitler's Excuse sort of me. oh that's okay um, Hitler's um, sort of Almost desire you make you make it sound in the book like he he really wants armed military conflict um, over over Czechoslovakia and he's almost you make him come out as almost seeming disappointed that there was a diplomatic solution and uh, you do a very good job of of depicting the anxiety of his generals during this this period. Um, if you could talk about this this episode and uh, sort of why he did 
or why he thought the way he thought about it. Yeah, I think um, it's one of the interesting things, and in, in one of the things you see that is not typically known about Hitler was that um, he had, um, um, I suppose, one of his reevaluations, or as he saw events uh, from the late 20s on and into the 1930s, one of the things that was always lurking in, in the forefront of his mind was the um, potential power of the United States. Um, and he was very much um, impressed with the potential, not only well, well, with the actual economic power, industrial power, and the potential military power of the United States. And, and um, he was growing, by the mid-30s, Despite his diplomatic triumphs, Hitler was growing increasingly frustrated with the slow pace of um, German rearmament, and his, his generals, of course, were accustomed in, 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 to thinking in terms of kind of military strength relationships, where you, if you, they're not a, they're not so much opposed to launching a war, but they want they want to have um, a situation in which uh, it appears to them that Germany has clear military superiority. But Hitler, uh, as as the 30s went on, began to to divine that that um, from from rates of rearmament and and um, and military buildups and and how long it was taking Germany to recover from the or to build up from the very low level they from which they had started, um, it might actually never be possible for Germany to achieve clear military superiority even over the British and French, let alone that always that possibility of the United States, of course, joining with them with the British and the French. So what you what you see really markedly from nineteen thirty seven and nineteen thirty eight on is is Hitler is is extraordinarily impatient. He has this very strong sense of a of a time pressure. And I think that's what factors into them his disappointment in in September and October 1938. And and I think I, I think you, you've correctly um, uh, summarized my view. I, I think Hitler really is disappointed that there's not war in in in, in the fall of 1938. I, I think in Hitler's mind, he believed that if there if, if if there had not been the Munich Conference and if the Sudeten crisis had gone to war. And had resulted in a European war. Of course, it would have been a, a more limited European war. It would have been um, Germany against the Western democratic nations. Um, that was a war I think Hitler thought he could win. Um, but in any case, I think I, I suppose the key question is that, or the key point is that um, Hitler didn't think a war would break out. Um, he, he was pretty certain that the French would not uh, take any action. And he was skeptical that the British would actually go to war. So I think in Hitler's mind, he had he had in, he envisioned a scenario in which, um, when push came to shove over his demands um, for the Sudetenland, uh, the British and the French would back down. And having suffered yet another diplomatic humiliation, that would end any active French um, opposition to, to German. Uh, expansion in the east, and that would likely end any really any active British diplomatic uh, resistance to, to Germany's aims in the east, which would effectively then forestall any sort of American intervention, diplomatic or otherwise. So I, I think he, I think he, he perceived that 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 the Sudeten crisis was his grand opportunity to 
so humiliate the Western powers diplomatically that they would remain passive when he began his expansive drive in the East. And and so, as I've argued in various books, from Hitler's perspective, the wrong war was always the war in the West against France and Great Britain. And I think I think the more he thought about it, and this is something that that, that obsessed him till the day he died, literally. I, I think the more he thought about it, the more he kept coming back to that "what if," what if I had launched the war in in the fall of 1938, and what if the British and French had backed down, then I would have gained a year and a half, two years of time. And I wouldn't have had to have fought a war in the West, and I could have turned all my attention immediately against the Soviet Union. So I, I, th- I think that's the I think that's the scenario that that was obsessing him. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> so you you've just led us up to um, his his the coming invasion of Poland, uh, just you know a year later after after this. Um, what were what was the mindset amongst his military leaders? On just before the invasion of Poland, um, because you know we know the end result of the invasion. You know it was very quick. Um, they did defeat the Polish army, um, you know, in just several weeks. Um, but you 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 demonstrate in the book that you know there wasn't. I mean, there was there was confidence that the war could be won, but not not quite. They didn't necessarily think it was going to play out the way it played out. Can you can you explain this sort of the planning process and the and the and you know, so the the early early moments of that conflict. Yeah, the, um, the, the, the there's I guess there's kind of a kind of a, uh, on, on a on a dual level there. The the the, the uh, generals were were f- fairly confident that obviously they could defeat Poland militarily. That that it would come so swiftly, I think, was 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 a, was a great surprise to the generals. Um, and again, we we. We tend to be taken in by that whole notion of, uh, I guess, what we could call today the myth of Blitzkrieg, that the Germans had devised this this um, stunningly brilliant new method of of, of, ma- of waging war, and then, then they simply unleashed this in Poland. Um, they they hadn't. They, they they weren't quite certain. Um, they had they had experimented a little bit with the use of tanks, but but they didn't really have a very extensive uh, Tank court at the time, and certainly they didn't have the powerful tanks of later. They weren't they weren't entirely certain how to use their tanks in coordination with infantry. Um, in a sense, the Blitzkrieg campaign in Poland unfolded primarily because of of the geographical considerations. The fact that Germany um, encircled Poland on three on three sides, uh, which made kind of a uh, a a, blitz, a blitzkrieg type war possible, where the Germans would naturally launch, um, <clears throat> excuse me, would naturally launch uh, attacks into the into the Polish rear and flanks. Um, but but this but this notion that they had devised this this new form of war uh, that was the, the Germans weren't they weren't terribly confident that this would all work because. Um, this 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 was not something that had been demonstrated in any sort of in depth in terms of war gaming or or, or things like that. The, the other big consideration was, um, I guess, at the at the macro level, at the strategic level. The other consideration was the 
the fear that, the, as they did, that the Western powers, the Western democracies, Britain and France, would come into the war, and, and kind of the general military assumption, the general's assumption that the, the British and French would immediately launch um, an attack in the West against against German defenses to to to, um, to aid the Poles and uh, the, the the against again um, in kind of um, contrast to our general perception of of, of of the German military, the German military leaders in, in the fall of 1939 were really mostly a, a obsessed with their, with the perception of German weakness, I think, rather than German strength. They weren't, they, they were, they were aware that, um, that although they were probably superior to Poland, they certainly were not superior in military strength to the British and French. So there was that there was that unease in their mind that that um, that this could be a repetition on obviously in different circumstances, but this could be a repetition of the two front war of World War One, uh, which brought back all sorts of um, uh, um, of uh, unhelpful sort of, uh, of 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 worrisome memories there. So um, the Polish campaign, uh, yeah, it, it was it was. Um, it was something that, in retrospect, seems to confirm Blitzkrieg. But at the time, the German generals were, and, and quite frankly, they remained skeptical of Blitzkrieg even after the triumph in Poland. Yeah, I, you mentioned this in your book, and this was something I wanted to ask you about because you know you watch the documentaries on the History Channel, you get this this picture of this very mechanized, very modern uh, German army just from the very beginning. They just sort of spring out of nowhere. Um, and one of the things in your book that I found fascinating was this rivalry between the generals themselves over the, how to use new technology, how to use tanks. Um, and and I'm specifically, I want to ask about using tanks in the invasion of, of France. Um, you know, as you mentioned in some older military strategy, the tanks are used to protect infantry, not to be their own, you know, their own units advancing at their own speed and so on. Um, and so I, I want to talk about the. I want you to explain our, the, to our listeners the the sort of the the different types of thinking going on amongst the generals, like sort of between the older generals and the younger generals. Right. Yeah. The, yeah. The um, the, the um, probably ninety eight percent of the senior uh, general, you know, officer corps, the top generals, the, the, the generalship in in the German army um, were skeptical, very skeptical of the tank. It was a nice. Potentially a nice support weapon, but they but they couldn't envision how it might be used. And um, and of course, from their perspective, the Polish campaign was, was it was irrelevant when it came to um, possibly defeating France because uh, Poland was so much different. The 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 the, the, the geographical considerations that the Germans couldn't outflank Poland. The the French army was certainly considered far superior to the Polish army. The British would would help the, the French. Uh, most of the most of the of the you might call them traditional generals couldn't conceive how Blitzkrieg could work because they could envision if if you if you talk about a thin um, a spearhead of panzers coming coming through as, as eventually happened coming through the Ardennes, um, they couldn't envision a scenario in which the French army would would remain. Um, Static, and would not do the most obvious thing. It, it seemed to them that is um, 
marshal their forces and launch a counterattack at them at the vulnerable at the vulnerable base of the of the German spearhead. Uh, so it seemed in, it, it seemed uh, unthinkable to them to the German generals that 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 this audacious plan might work because it seemed so obvious to them what the what the logical countermeasure would be. So um, they they were very you know it, it, it took a long time for the for the frankly for the um, the successful Blitzkrieg campaign in France to evolve. The the initial plan planning in fact the initial plans were were really very pedestrian um, because the the planners at um, at army headquarters simply could not envision how tanks could be used in rapid movement to knock a great power like France out in one blow and and so the original plans of attack the first two or three plans of attack never actually envisioned knocking France out at one blow. Uh, it, it just, it, it simply, it was something they couldn't conceive. And it, it, it the whole process, of course, um, was it kind of, in a sense, again, kind of demonstrated um, Hitler's ability um, to read a map, his ability to think um, in innovative terms, uh, we might say to think out of the box. Hitler early on envisioned um, was dissatisfied with the, with the rather unimaginative plans of the of, 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 of the operational staff, and so he suggested um, moving the focal point of attack away from the from the Low Countries as such, and and um, moving it to the south to the Ardennes, where a, a Panzer um, thrust could come through the Ardennes and potentially break through French lines and and um, get to the Channel coast. Uh, which then raised the possibility of the destruction of um, of an entire French Franco Franco uh, uh, British army there, and uh, and of course the, the idea was was initially uh, 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 ridiculed by Halder and others at at OKH, and it, it was not until of course uh, Monstein independently proposed pretty much the same idea that that. Um, Halder and others began to take it seriously and began to uh, envision perhaps how this plan could work um, in, in, a, in a way that, again, kind of reveals the influence of World War I on, on all of the thinkers at the time. The, 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 the um, experience of real World War I, I think, had convinced the German generals as others in, in other countries that um, Great powers could not be knocked out at one blow, so it was it was futile to try to knock out a great power at one blow. But I think as as um, as, as many of the top generals, uh, certainly the key generals like Halder, began to perceive that maybe this strategy might be able to to knock the French out at one blow. Then they then they began to throw their their support behind it. Um. So let, let's jump ahead a little bit. So France, France is obviously defeated um, quickly. Um, and now Hitler is free to return his attention east. Um, and, and so if you could explain the initial planning of Barbarossa um, and sort of how all of the things that you have been talking about through the course of this interview sort of added up to this moment for him. Yeah, as, as I've indicated before, from Hitler's point of view, the real war was always in the East because, as he understood it, Germany had lost World War One because of 
lack of resources. So all of the uh, available attainable re <clears throat> resources um, lay in the east. And so um, things fit together. And in, in, in a sense, you can see the different dimensions of, of the war in, in Russia. Um, obviously, the um, if you want to call it this, the colonial dimension, Lebensraum or living space, the, the uh, conquest and exploitation of, of raw materials and foodstuffs. There's also, the, in a sense, the racial war, um, Hitler's racial um, views, um, the um, alleged inferiority of um, the Slavic peoples, the um, from what from Hitler's point of view, the racial threat posed by um, by the Jewish population and, and the so-called uh, Jewish conspiracy, and of course, then there's the ideological the ideological consideration since Hitler uh, saw um, the communism is simply part of this alleged Jewish conspiracy of destruction. Um, so in Hitler's mind, all of his major considerations uh, came together in the war in Russia, his ideological obsessions, his racial obsessions, and then his, um, his determination to conquer the so-called living space for the German people. So, um, the war in the East, as I said, was always the, that, that was always that was a given for Hitler. That was always where Germany's future to him lay. So the so the question was basically simply operational. How 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 was the best way to um, to defeat the Soviet Union? And then again, you and again you get this kind of interesting um, conceptual difference. Uh, Hitler. Um, sketched out a plan, kind of an indirect plan for the invasion of the Soviet Union that um, where um, a thrust in the center would be would be kind of secondary. It would be used only essentially to tie down uh, Soviet uh, forces, Red Army troops, so they couldn't retreat. So the, the key was to defeat the, the Red Army as close to the border as possible. So the idea was to, to launch an attack. Hitler's idea was to launch an attack in the middle but simply as um, to hold the to hold Red Army forces in place in the middle, and then the major the major advances would take place on a grand scale on either flank to the north through Leningrad and then to the south through Kiev, and then the, the, then Hitler essentially envisioned a, a vast encircling movement that would that would kind of circle back then on on Moscow, um, but the key was to um, the key was this indirect approach to hold the hold Red Army forces in the center, and then strike at them, strike at the flanks. Whereas um, Holder's conception was kind of the classic uh, military conception of attack in the center and head for Moscow on the assumption that Moscow would be so important in terms of um, well political importance, economic importance, ideological importance, uh, communication, so forth, um, that, the, that the Red Army, that the Stalin would be forced to, um, to um, throw in the bulk of his military forces to defend Moscow. And so in kind of classic uh, military operational terms, then you could defeat the bulk of the Red Army by moving towards Moscow. Um, that was, I mean, that was kind of the classic. That was kind of the classic thinking from Hitler's perspective. The problem with that was, I suppose, the kind of the the the, um, the the fear of them, the kind of the specter of Napoleon. The, the problem with that is that if you can't pin the Red Army in the, if you attack in the center, 
and are uh, unsuccessful in initial encirclement operations in, in destroying the bulk of the Red Army or pinning them in place, then the, the vast expanse of, of Russia allows um, your opposing uh, your opponent simply to re- begin retreating and, and luring you into the interior of Russia, which is one thing that Clausewitz, for example, warned against about being being lured into the interior of Russia. So Hitler had a had a strong conception that that um, the the danger in the center was precisely that the Germans might win battles, but um, not effectively prevent the Red Army from retreating um, and carrying on the war. Hmm. So the initial phases of of the operation goes goes all right. They 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 conquer mm-hmm. tremendous swaths of territory very quickly. And then they reach Stalingrad and things begin to bog down. Um, if you can talk just a little bit about Stalingrad, um, you know, this is seen by, by many as the big turning point um, for the Germans. Um, talk about Stalingrad and then sort of lead us to the end of the war. Um, and, and then give your overall assessments of Hitler sort of as a military artillery leader. Yeah, Stalingrad is one of those interesting things that, in fact, one of the things I tried to get across in the book is that, as uh, and certainly I think this would be the consensus of many uh, German military historians today, that uh, Stalingrad, Stalingrad uh, was important, but perhaps was not the turning point of the war that, that people envision it. Uh, German historians, and I, and I tend to agree with them, uh, locate, the, if you want to talk about the turning point, locate the turning point of the war much earlier. In fact, it could be as early as um, mid-August 1941, or certainly by November 1941, even before the German reverse in, <clears throat> excuse me, even before the German reverse in front of Moscow, um, because it's it's fairly, I mean, if, if you look at Hitler's statements by, um, in, in, in mid-August and, and in mid-November 1941, both Hitler makes, uh, in retrospect, I, I'm sure at the time must have seemed rather curious statements to his listeners, but in retrospect seem quite insightful, that, um, which would indicate that he has a sense that Germany cannot win the war the way he originally envisioned, and um, that he, he was not likely, uh, the Soviet Union was not likely to be knocked out of the war. And so it, it's kind of interesting, if you look at Stalingrad, from that perspective, it, it gives kind of a it gives kind of a, a different interpretation, I, I, I suppose, where the key events are really taking place in the in the winter of 1941 and in, in, into into early 1942. So Stalingrad then becomes a, a turning point, but it's a different kind of turning point. What Hitler envisions in the summer of 1942 is a campaign. I think I think he envisions a campaign uh, not to knock the Soviet Union out of the war anymore, but simply to kind of um, immobilize the Soviet Union to um, to um, destroy the um, Soviet ability to, to to wage active war, large scale war, by by denying the Soviets um, resources, key resources, and especially oil. Um, and, and so, the, so interestingly, Stalingrad was important, and the whole plan of the, the whole military campaign in 1942 was essentially an admission 
And of course, Hitler had been deep, deeply involved in planning them, the operation in 1942. It was an admission that Germany had insufficient uh, force, insufficient strength um, for an all-out assault on the, on the Red Army in the South. And so the whole operation was to be sequential, uh, one stage leading to the next stage, which would ultimately lead, if everything went right, to the capture of the oil fields of the Caucasus. Uh, in, in that scenario, scenario, interestingly, Stalingrad was not in and of itself terribly important. The important thing was to uh, was to get to Stalingrad and to block the Volga River. Um, uh, if you could get to Stalingrad, invest Stalingrad, then you could um, begin to impede um, industrial production. Stalingrad was a major tank production center for the Soviet Union. But more importantly, and again, kind of shows Hitler's understanding of the broader war, more importantly, the Stalingrad was a major inland port on the Volga River uh, through which uh, increasingly American lend-lease supplies were being brought up from the Caspian Sea along the Volga. And of course, the Volga uh, reaches all the way to the, up to the, the east and north of Moscow. So uh, using the Volga River as a transport system, you could supply virtually every every one of the fronts so american american lend lease supplies could flow very efficiently by using the volga river so one of hitler's main goals at stalingrad ironically was to was to um, was to uh, cut the volga river the um, stalingrad in a sense shows hitler's insight i mean he understands this it also i think it also shows hitler's um, one of his major deficiencies as a um, as a military leader, he was um, he was incre- he was uh, very very impatient. He he um, he had a difficult time um, prioritizing and sticking to his priorities. So um, he made the fateful decision in um, late July 1942 to split German forces, which were already insufficient, and, and send one army uh, heading to the um, to the south to the Caucasus oil fields. And then another army heading separately across to Stalingrad to try to, to try to see Stalingrad, um, which was which was um, uh, in some respects, as I argue in the book, the most profound military mistake Hitler made during the course of the war was to was to split his forces and and abandon the sequential nature of them of that 1942 summer campaign, because by doing that it, it really meant that he couldn't achieve any of his goals in 1942. And so what Stalingrad, I think, ultimately represents, and this kind of that this kind of flows into the remainder of your question here, what Stalingrad ultimately represents is, is Hitler's understanding that the defeat at Stalingrad, and, 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 and Hitler, I think, understands this even before German forces are finally defeated at Stalingrad. It, again, as early as, um, September, October 1942, even as the bad battle to, to, to take Stalingrad is waging uh, or is raging, Hitler has a sense that um, that any hope of winning the war, and, and, and of course there are different there are different ways to interpret winning the war. You don't have to win absolutely, but any hope, perhaps, of even 
obtaining the resources to to be able to kind of stalemate uh, a um, a global war have have been lost with with the with the um, with the defeat at Stalingrad. So what you see in 1943-44 increasingly, and, and this is this is where the, 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 a lot of the criticism of Hitler as a military leader comes in is from 43-44 on. Um, certainly, from the from the late summer of 1943 on, Hitler increasingly seems to be obsessed with holding on and and uh, not allowing you know the withdrawals. He's famously criticized over and over for for not allowing them. Monstein, for example, to engage in nimble movement and withdrawals. I think I think good part of that. And again, the, the, my reply to that is that. Um, in a sense, Hitler again was was looking at at, at at that war from a different perspective. In order to wage a mobile war, you have to have the resources by which to wage a mobile war. And if if um, Germany began to withdraw too much, Germany would give up too much territory and therefore too many of the valuable resources they needed by which to to wage this to continue to continue to wage the war. And in any case, to wage a mobile war, you have to have um, mobile forces you have to have mobility and from the autumn of 1943 on certainly the german army was becoming increasingly um demotorized increasingly demobile if you want to put it that way they they had lost aerial su- the superiority um they certainly were were uh, losing their their mobility edge over the red army and so Hitler's understanding, I think, of the problems of um, waging mobile war are not as irrational, perhaps, as, as people uh, as, as, as people have traditionally. Some historians have traditionally made them out to be. I, th- I think he has a, a fairly sophisticated understanding of the problems raised by by trying to wage a mobile war. When you're when you're increasingly being overwhelmed by resources, um, and so I guess finally to answer in, in terms of in terms of of what Hitler's I think ultimately trying to do, and he makes this fairly clear in terms of holding on. I think Hitler is increasingly uh, operating under his assumption that the, that the anti-Hitler coalition, the, the, the British, Americans, and 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 the Soviet Union. Is an inherently unnatural coalition, so it's so it's 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 fundamentally unstable. You have the two great Western capitalist democracies in, in alliance with the with, with Soviet communism. So Hitler is increasingly of the opinion that if he can just hold on long enough, um, this unnatural coalition is is going sooner or later it's going to collapse. <clears throat> and and certainly he increased he he, he um, uh, more and more quotes Frederick the Great who of course survived the Seven Years War simply by outlasting his opponents until the unnatural coalition arranged against Frederick collapsed and in many respects I think Hitler saw himself uh, trying to pull off um, a, a, another miracle. Uh, uh, just just hang on long enough so that the, this unnatural coalition would. Um, would eventually collapse, and and he could wriggle out with some sort of some sort of um, of uh, if not gains, certainly maybe the survival of his regime. He could wriggle out from under that. Although uh, 
that was increasingly, obviously, increasingly improbable. Um, as, as a way to sort of wrap up discussion of your book, um, just give us a couple of, of sentences. What is your overall assessment of him as a military leader? I mean, I, I'm sure listeners can sort of gauge where you're going to go with this, given your talk, but um, I put a nice bow on it for us. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think in a sense, what I was trying to get across in the book was that Hitler was um, um, not simply the, the, the irrational madman of caricature. That's too simplistic. That, in a sense, that lets him off the hook too easily. Um, in, in many respects, my my sense that Hitler was 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 uh, dangerous precisely because he was uh, far more capable and competent than than than, than, than people like to believe. Um, certainly, he had strength strengths as a military leader in um, in um, a kind of understanding the the larger strategic goals he wanted to achieve. He had he certainly could read a map. He certainly understood um, uh, opportunities. Um, he he, um, he had a sense for the weak point of his enemies. He had a he had a sense for the um, for the surprise, he had a he was attracted uh, at least early on. Certainly, he was attracted by um, innovative ideas, um, unconventional sort of ideas that that offered uh, great promise. Um, he certainly uh, was willing to take great risks in order to attain great re- rewards. <clears throat> on the on the other hand. Uh, Hitler's Hitler's greatest efficiency, probably he he, um, I'm, and then this is I'm I'm sure not unusual for an, uh, somebody who was not trained as a military leader. He he um, he didn't often did not understand the mund- you know, what seems to be the mundane aspects of military operations, but are in fact quite crucial. He oftentimes overlooked supply aspects, logistical aspects. Um, how you move armies from one place to another, how you supply those armies, um, just just kind of just kind of mundane things like that. But but he he did have a, he did have a quick mind and and he was um, he was uh, probably uh, I think in general and and of course you always have to be be careful because at a certain point and certainly from from mid 44 on this is certainly true um but up up until say mid 44 i think he i think he's willing to be entertain ideas and he's he's a little bit more flexible than than many of his critics give him credit for um one, one of the one of the things that impressed me with hitler especially early on was that um, again despite this image um or in, in contrast to this image of hitler as this uh, Decisive, intimidating sort of leader who imposes imposes his his will constantly on his on his cowed and and uh, fearful generals. Hitler oftentimes, certainly through 1942, Hitler oftentimes um, seems to be unsure of himself and is engages in endless discussions with his generals, trying to. Uh, Trying to persuade his generals through the force of his argument, as much as the force of his will. Uh, certainly, it's hard to envision Stalin. In fact, it's hard to envision any of uh, Stalin's generals arguing with him furiously for days on end over 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 key decisions. And 
and in 1940, 1941, and even into 1942, you see Hitler engaging in, in extended uh, discussions with his generals and debating them over over what decision to make. So um, it gives it give, again, it gives kind of a different perspective, I suppose, to our understanding of how Hitler operated. Yeah, I I definitely want to encourage all our listeners to. Uh, Pick up your book. It's a fascinating book. Um, it's uh, again called Hit, uh, "The First Soldier: Hitler as Military Leader." Um, <clears throat> and, but Stephen, before I let you go, I want to ask one final question: um, What are you working on now that this project is done and over? Well, one one of the things that um, that interested me is I, I mentioned way back at the beginning of the of the conversation here that in in the in his early iteration, I suppose as a, as a, as a would be political leader in the early twenties. Uh, what 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 struck me in hit many of Hitler's speeches, as I said, was that he was trying to explain what had happened to Germany. And so Hitler, of course, was very well read in in history, and and he uh, he tried he, he he tried to think historically. He tried to explain to his various audiences, oftentimes by going back hundreds of years in German history, exactly what things had happened. Uh, to Germany and the German lands before there was a unified Germany and and trying to um, trying to make sense of history and so I got fascinated with um, with uh, Hitler's conception of history so at the moment I'm I'm uh, beginning some preliminary research into Hitler's concept of of history and uh, how he used history and and how his um, understanding of um, of historical events shaped his ideas and and shaped his uh, not only his military strategy eventually certainly but uh, shaped many of his political ideas um, how he used history and and um, his historical explanations uh, to connect with the german people and to and to offer what to them might have seemed like um, a reasonable explanation for um, for why germany was where it was in the 1920s and 30s so so kind of, kind of in the general framework of Hitler as an historian, I suppose would be what I'm working on at the moment. Well, uh, no pressure, but when you when you're done and it's a book, um, I'd love to have you back to talk about it. 